Please be seated. And uh, thank you to Fiona and the band for leading those songs, uh, focusing very much on the person and work and ministry of God the Holy Spirit, who features very powerfully in our Bible passage this evening. But before we we get on to that, um, as a sort of way of getting my own back on Alan and what he said at the beginning of the service, um, we got up very early one Easter Monday morning uh, and set off in the car. We reached Penrith in four hours, which I've never done before or since uh, because there was so little traffic on the roads. In another half an hour or so, we were at Keswick in the uh, English Lakes and uh, we were soon on our way up a well-known mountain called Skiddaw. We tramped up Skiddaw for a couple of hours or so and reached the top and then had a look round to see the view. Well, we could see one another. There were three of us, myself, my daughter and her friend. Uh, and we could see the ground immediately under our feet. But everything else was thick, impenetrable mist. Apart from a fraction of a moment, perhaps just a few seconds, when the clouds just drifted by and just for... A moment, you could see through the cloud, you could see through the mist, and see there a, uh, the beginnings of a panorama stretching out other hills and mountains, fields, rivers, trees, woods, and then horizon, and then the cloud came over again, and that was it. Now, that's been, actually been my enduring um, m- mental image as I have uh, prepared uh, to speak to both this, uh, uh, this Sunday evening and next Sunday evening from Romans chapter 8. Far from having all the answers, uh, I feel as though the results of my prayer and meditation and study and thinking may just have led to a, a momentary clearing of vision, uh, and I hope to share something of that uh, with you. It's a thrilling passage, but in a sense a forbidding one as well, because it's so It's so high, it's so lofty, it's so exalted. Let us pray. A little bit later in Romans, Paul will write the following words. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counsellor? But God, you have been pleased to reveal your mind to us. We would not dream to be your counsellor, but if you will counsel us, if you'll guide us and be our teacher, if that same Holy Spirit of whom we have sung and to whom we have sung, that same Holy Spirit who inspired these words would now come among us and help to clear the mist away the mist of our misunderstanding and our ignorance and help us to see, to know, to love and to respond to the things of God. Amen. Amen. 
So we are in Romans 8, as you know. I should be particularly grateful if you could open a Bible uh, at Romans chapter 8. In the uh, Church Bibles, it's page 1134 and following. I'll be referring to this, this passage to give you a degree of confidence that I am uh, uh, at least attempting to impart to you my understanding of the Word of God rather than just my own thoughts feelings and opinions about it. But where do we start with Romans chapter 8? It um, is a strong contender for the prize of being the greatest passage in the whole of Holy Scripture. It's a sumptuous banquet, but which of its dishes do we sample? It's a glorious symphony, but which of its themes do we try to attune our ears to? It's, well, here we go again, a lofty mountain range, but which of its peaks do we try to scale? Or, to pick up an illustration that Alan used last week, now that, in the previous chapters, the various bits of the engine have been assembled and the car is ready to take the road, in which direction do we set off? Well, as always, it's good to get our bearings from the context Although chapter 8 of Romans can in many ways be seen as uh, the climax of the letter, um, I'm not sure that it's the hinge or the pivot upon which Paul's argument turns. Uh, I think a good contender for that would be chapter 5. In chapter 5, Paul has demonstrated once again that in Christ we have victory over sin and death. But of course, that isn't quite the end of the story. Otherwise, Romans could have ended at the end of chapter 5. We have victory over sin and death, but just in case you hadn't noticed, we still sin and we still die. So what are we to make of that? Now, by the time that we reach chapter 8, Paul is still dealing with that problem. Christians are liberated from sin and yet they still sin. Christians are liberated from death itself, and yet we must die one day, sooner or later. And Paul is dealing with that problem, perhaps especially the second of those, the prospect of death in this chapter. And how can God in Christ have be seen to have vanquished death itself? Well, Paul will want to tell us in this chapter, I think, that sin and death have been decisively dealt with in the cross work of Jesus Christ. God will one day make all things new and will bring us into the fullness of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And although we do not yet see the renewal of all things, we do experience here and now the power and the privileges of the age to come. It's kind of like those mobile phone stories. Um, help is on the way. Already things are in process of recovery and rescue. I want to try and unpack the first, um, uh, at least part, of some of what Paul says in the, verse, in the first 17 verses of Romans chapter 8 in the following 
three ways. Firstly, Paul would have us know here that we are no longer dead, but alive. We are no longer dead, but alive. Well, look with me at verse 1, where Paul says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul has already taught us in chapter 6 and verse 23 that the wages of sin, the penalty that sin deserves, is death. But now he says, for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation and therefore no death penalty. No condemnation. Please note that he doesn't say no accusation. He doesn't say no mistakes. He doesn't say no failures. He doesn't even say no sins. What he does say is no condemnation. This no condemnation is not like that experienced recently by Brian Thomas. He was, if you recall, the devoted husband who, poor man, killed his wife in his sleep because he dreamt that intruders had broken into their camper van. That poor man was excused because he was deemed to have no control over what he was doing. He had a sleep disorder. Oh, no, condemnation is not like that. We have knowingly and deliberately and repeatedly rebelled against our God. And yet he is willing to lift the sentence to remit the penalty, to pay the price out of his own account. Nor is this no condemnation like the um, pardon that President Obama granted a few days ago. Did you read about that one? It was a pardon uh, awarded to a turkey. I think the turkey's name was Courage. Well, out of all the 45 million turkeys that are cooked on Thanksgiving, just the one received the presidential pardon. But God's purpose is to gather a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. No condemnation. Verse 3 tells us how this has been achieved. Paul says in that verse, the law was powerless to do it, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. And this takes us back to something else that Alan said last week from chapter 7. Paul has nothing against God's law. The Ten Commandments, they're great. Wonderful declaration of the character of God and what God reasonably expects from his preachers. The law itself is fine. As Paul says in chapter 7 and verse 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. And yet, the law was feeble. It was, as Paul says here, powerless, weakened, unable to deal with the problem of sin. But what the the law couldn't do, says Paul, God himself has done. And he did it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to to be a sin offering. 
God has condemned sin by sending his own son as a sacrifice for sin. What Paul is saying here, I think, is that the incarnation, the coming of his dear son to this earth, the incarnation brought the sinless son of God into the closest possible connection with our sinful nature, short of actually becoming a sinner himself. He took on our nature's frailty in order to exhaust the penalty that we deserved. And so, Paul says, God condemned sin in sinful man. That is to say, he dealt with sin. He dealt sin itself a death blow. He broke its power by pronouncing and carrying out on it a sentence of execution. The commentator Charles Cranfield says, for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no divine condemnation since the condemnation they deserve has already been fully borne for them by him. Well, I wouldn't want you to suppose, and I don't think Paul would want you, to, want you to suppose, that eternal life just means the absence of death. If eternal life were just endless existence, well, surely that would soon become intolerable. As the saying goes, thousands long for eternal life and immortality who don't know what to do with themselves on a rainy Sunday afternoon. Jonathan, can I stop you? Is there, can anyone else... Has the sound just gone? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to swap the microphones. Help is, on its, help is on its way. Thank you. Testing, testing. Yeah. Where were we? Rainy Sunday afternoon. Uh, thank you very much. I hadn't got that bit written down, so I'm still lost. <laughs> um, right, it's not just the absence of death. It's the presence of life, the presence of real life. According to verses 9 and 11, if you'll please look with me, the Spirit of God lives in us. There is life, the very life of God in the here and now. In fact, according to Paul, it's not possible to receive Christ as our Savior without at the same time receiving the Holy Spirit, the bringer of life. As verse 9 says, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. They both come together. And as John Stott very helpfully says, of course, there may be many further and richer experiences of the spirit and many fresh anointings of the spirit for special tasks, if I can just make this point now, that we'll be singing and praying to the Holy Spirit at the close of, of my talk this evening, 
praying that the Holy Spirit would empower us more fully. So we don't just wait for something future and better. We long now for the Holy Spirit to empower us even more. And we long for those rich experiences and those fresh anointings. But, as John Stott goes on to say, the personal indwelling of the Spirit is every believer's privilege from the beginning. To know Christ and to have the Spirit, he says, are one. And all of this has happened already. But all the way through this first part of chapter 8, Paul also has one eye on the future. So please notice in verse 11 that he says of the Holy Spirit, God who raised Christ by his Spirit will also raise our bodies through that same Spirit who lives in us. We have much now in terms of the presence of God by his Spirit. More, much more to come, including the raising of our very bodies. So then, we are no longer dead, but alive. And we have that life now. And there is more, much more, still to come. That's the first point. Now, my second point is this. We are no longer slaves, but sons. No longer slaves, but sons. Verse 15 says, You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. Now, of course, to be a servant, to be a subject, to be a soldier, to be a disciple, to be a friend of God, all these are wonderful indeed. But to be the son of God is best of all. Jim Packer describes adoption as the highest privilege that the gospel offers. And there are many privileges that the gospel brings to us. But you may wonder, why does Paul say sons and not children? Well, it's not just enough to just reply that Paul lived in days before political correctness. When Paul, for example, speaks of the church, he deliberately uses the feminine. Ephesians 5, verse 25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her even though, as you can see, look around, the church consists of both men and women. But adoption is equally deliberately masculine for the following reason. In New Testament times, the adoption of sons implied a special status, relationship, and inheritance, which resonates with the experience of all God's children, whether we happen to be male or female. We have, for one thing, then, the status of sons. The commentator uh, F.F. Bruce says, in the Roman world of the first century AD, an adopted son was a son deliberately chosen by his adoptive father to perpetrate his name and inherit his estate. He was no whit inferior in status to a son born in the ordinary course of nature and might well enjoy his father's affection more fully and reproduce his father's character more worthily. We have the status of sons. A little girl once wrote a letter to God. Dear God, 
she said in her letter. I am adopted. Is that as good as being real? Well, we who are adopted sons of God are real in God's sight. Indeed, we are in Christ and so have the same status before God as his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. One of those touching and beautiful pictures contained both in the Old Testament in the Psalms and also in the New Testament in Hebrews is that picture where the son, Jesus, says to his father, God, here am I and the children God has given me. There we are with Christ, having the full status, just as he has, of beloved sons of God. We have the status of sons. We also have the relationship of sons. In verse 15, uh, Paul speaks of this relationship, this adoptive relationship. By this spirit, he says, we cry, and that word could mean cry or call out or even scream. Have you ever screamed out to God in prayer? You may, as his son. By this spirit, we cry Abba, Father. What a wonderful thing it is for us to address the Most High God in such a way. And do you know, with just one very notable exception, when he was on the cross, this is just how Jesus himself always addressed his Father in his prayers as recorded in the Gospels. So therefore, then in crying out Abba, as we may and do in our prayers, the Christian not only claims a loving, trusting, affectionate access to God, but a status and a relationship comparable to that of Christ himself. We have the status of sons. We have the relationship of sons. But now we have the inheritance of sons. Verse 17 Do you see it? We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Think of what Christ has inherited. Christ who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, spurning, despising its shame. Consider all that Christ now enjoys at the right hand of God in glory. All of this belongs to to us as well. Of course, this idea of inheritance belongs very much to the future. Already we are God's adopted sons, but we do not yet come into our full inheritance. Already we have received the first installments, but we do not yet have the full amount. Indeed, Paul will say in verse 17, if we expect to enter into the fullness of Christ's inheritance, we must also expect in this life to share in Christ's suffering. As it was for Christ, so it must be for those who belong to Christ, first the cross and then the crown. So then, we are no longer dead but alive. That was the first point. Then, we are no longer slaves but sons. That was my second point. 
But for Paul, these inestimable privileges have inescapable consequence. I don't know why I prepared to say those words in the middle of a sermon. These consequences, these implications, these entailments can be summed up under our third and last heading. We no longer serve the flesh, but the spirit. If verse 1 has taught that we have been set free from sin's penalty, then according to verse 2, we have also been liberated from sin's power. Through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law, that is to say the rule, of sin and death. And then in verse 12, Paul puts it in a slightly different way. He says in that verse, we have an obligation. An obligation not to serve the sinful nature, but to serve the Holy Spirit. This is an obligation to put to death the misdeeds of the body. Of course, Paul doesn't want us to think that the body is evil in itself. He teaches us that our bodies, indeed the whole creation, the whole physical creation, will one day be fully restored and redeemed. That's something for next Sunday evening. But our bodies are so often the vehicles by which sin finds expression in acts of wrongdoing. And it is these that we must put to death. We have an obligation to do so. It is with our eyes, for example, that we see what we then covet. It is with our ears that we hear gossip and slander, which we first embroider and then pass on. It is with our tongues that we curse and boast and threaten one another. It is with our feet that we run into temptation when we know we should be running away from it. It is the body, the exercise of the mind through the body, that leads us into wrongdoing and misdeeds. There is a putting together, what the old theologians and Christian writers used to call, call a mortifying of these sinful misdeeds. But there is, of course, a positive counterpart to all of this putting to death. Paul says in verse 5, we are to set our minds on what the Spirit desires. So there's the positive side of it. Set our minds upon what the Spirit desires. I'd like to point out to you from this passage that biblical teaching on guidance, on how we ought to behave and what choices we should make, has less to do with trying to guess the mind of God with regard to where we should live what job we should apply for, what course we should study for, whom we might marry. Biblical guidance has much more to do with asking, what would please the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit desire? And how can I make those desires my own? Now, I'm not suggesting now that you go out and buy and then wear the T-shirt, but I do encourage you to adopt the attitude the habit of thought and the mindset that does ask WWJD. It's a slogan that was around a century ago and, of course, a few years ago, again, especially in the United States. What would Jesus do? It's a pretty good rule of thumb 
because we know that what the Holy Spirit wants is what Jesus wants. And it's our business, our obligation, our duty and our joy to want those things do. That, I think, is the sum of the biblical teaching on guidance and what Paul means in verse 14 when he talks about being led by the Spirit. And this one looks to the future too. If we fulfill our baptismal vows to fight valiantly against the world, the flesh and the devil, there will be pain, difficulty and opposition. And therefore, in verse 17, we must be willing to share in Christ's sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. But that's beginning to take us into the rest of Romans 8, and that is next week's territory. To conclude then, Paul has taught us in this passage that in Christ we are no longer dead but alive. We are no longer slaves but sons. We are here no longer to serve the interests of the flesh but to serve the desires of the spirit. Each of these has already begun through the life-changing work of that Holy Spirit. But none of them is yet complete. And the remainder of this great chapter will take us further and deeper than perhaps any other in the whole of the Bible into the confidence that we can have that God, who has begun a good work in us, will bring it to completion. Right from verse 1, where there's no condemnation from God now, right through to its triumphant conclusion in verse 39. No separation from God ever. And in the meantime, we sing, we pray, we long for the Holy Spirit to fill us again, to empower us in every way to live abundant lives, not just waiting for some brighter future, but to live in the power of God's Holy Spirit even now, to live abundant lives in him, to be faithful sons, and to fulfill our obligations to him in every way. Just have a moment of quiet and reflection, and Fiona and the band will then lead us in a song of prayer and meditation. May each of us know what it means to be in Christ and so have received that new life, now in bud, then in some future day, at some future day, in full flower. May we know the privilege and the joy of being sons of the Most High God and to be able to cry out to him, Abba, Father. And may we resolve to live out our days in obedience to him, serving not the pull, the magnetism, the desires of the flesh, but to seek out and to serve the good desires and wishes of the Holy Spirit. Amen.